0: I am the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, and laws. It's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. First of all, I want to apologize for not having uploaded my podcast at their usual Friday morning time slots. As you know, there's been a lot of activity happening around Turtle Island lately, and I've had to make supporting our brothers and sisters on the ground my priority for the last month or so. I've also been putting extra time and effort into my YouTube series to help explain what's happening with the RCMP invasion of Wet'suwet'en territory and the context for all the Native and Canadian solidarity actions that have grown in strength to support the Wet'suwet'en nation. Let me know if you want me to do a podcast backgrounder on the key facts, issues, and context about what's happening with the Wet'suwet'en nation and all of these solidarity actions, and I'll try to get that up as soon as possible. So I'm going to do my best to get back on track with weekly episodes because I appreciate all the support you have shown for this Warrior Life podcast. And honestly, I have learned so much from all of the native warriors that have been on this podcast. It inspires me to keep building on it and inviting more people and sharing this knowledge with everyone, especially our youth. I think this is a critical part of the decolonization and revitalization process for native peoples. I'm uploading this podcast a day early because I think everyone needs to hear from our guest who's come to offer some insight about what is happening on Turtle Island. And for the benefit of those who don't know the background, here's a quick overview. What we know is that Coastal GasLink Pipeline, a subsidiary of TransCanada, is trying to build a pipeline through Wet'suwet'en territory without the free prior and informed consent of the nation. The pipeline company decided to go around the hereditary leaders and secure impact benefit agreements with some of the Indian Act ban councils and ignore the eviction order issued by the hereditary leaders. Coastal GasLink then went to court to get an injunction to allow them to proceed with the construction of the pipeline, and acting on that injunction, the RCMP invaded Wet'suwet'en territory and forcibly removed Wet'suwet'en peoples from their homes. Although the RCMP prohibited journalists from covering the forced removals, there were enough pictures and videos from inside the camps to see the RCMP with heavy machinery, helicopters, and an army of heavily armed officers. These actions, which clearly breach human rights, the freedom of the press, and indigenous rights, inspired nationwide actions in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en. Ever since then, there has been a mess of media coverage on this situation with governments and industry trying to desperately control the message and uninformed non-Native people offering their political commentary who have no idea what the core issues are or have any experience working in Native nations. Thankfully, Canadians know to look beyond the headlines, do their own research, and ask their own questions. And that's exactly what we're doing here today. I am so honored to have Mohawk Warrior Woman Ellen Gabriel back on this Warrior Life podcast to help answer some of the questions and issues that have been raised around the Wet'suwet'en defense of their territory. Ellen is a well-known Native rights activist and a human rights activist here on Turtle Island, and she's taken her advocacy work all over the world, including at the United Nations. She's won numerous awards for her advocacy and is really considered one of the leading experts on Native issues. She served as the president of Quebec Native Women, where she was president for six years. She was also the spokesperson during the 1990 siege of Gunasatage and Ganawage Mohawk territories when I first learned of her and saw her and her work. She's deeply rooted within the Haudenosaunee and their traditional forms of government and can share a great deal of insight into what is happening to the Wet'suwet'en Nation right now by the RCMP, by the pipeline companies, by the government, and all of the misinformation and debate that's happening in the media right now. I have long considered her one of my warrior heroes. Zego Ellen, Niawan for coming back to my podcast and for sharing your really valuable time to come and talk to us about traditional forms of government and why they're so critical to protecting our land bases.
1: Niawan Pam, it's, uh, it's great to be back on your show.
0: Well, there's so there's a lot of political commentary out there. I would say the majority of it is really ill-informed. It's basically by people who don't come from First Nations. They don't have any background, even in First Nation rights. They don't know the history. They don't know the context. Uh, Many of them are just journalists um, commenting on just what they think, their own personal opinions, without really coming from a basis of knowledge. And To my mind, that is doing a real disservice to Canadians, but it's Mm -hmm. also causing a lot of, like, misunderstanding within our own nations because, you know, as you know, the media is this huge influencer in information and opinions and how we get portrayed. And um, I'm just wondering if you've noticed some of that in the media, especially around this whole question of Indian Act chiefs and councils versus traditional forms of government.
1: No, you're, you're spot on because uh, you know, you would think that after, you know, 30 years ago, we were trying to educate the media and the public about the differences and they ignored us uh, once again, um, that by now that there would be a greater understanding. Uh, The government is very much aware of the differences. And so, you know, when people start talking about what inherent right means, well, our nation to nation, that means the traditional governments. And um, some are called hereditary, some are not. Some, you know, we, we, we look at the Haudenosaunee, it's not an inherited uh, thing. It's not automatic because your, your your father was a chief, you'll be a chief. This is something that we see um, like the ever-growing tree, right? It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's you know, if a child um the clan mothers recognize that this this child has a potential for a good leadership they're patient they're a good kid they have a good mind they'll be selected but they work for the people the chiefs and clan mothers work for the people and, and so when we we look at the band council system it's a 3 4 year term it's pretty much by a popularity contest. It's a presumption that it's a it's a democratic process, mm-hmm. whereas you know, like in Ghan- in Ganesadage, there's like one quarter of our membership uh, actually votes in the elections, because people don't trust the band council or the Indian Act system and the government, and so there's there's um, presumption by all these people who who are not educated to think that that's a more democratic system, but it's not. So there's a lot of misconceptions of the differences between uh, Bank Council and uh, traditional
0: governments. Exactly. Well, and even the heart of supposed democracy, not the way it's been implemented, but the heart of democracy is supposed to be, you know, laws and governments by the people, for the people, like it's people power. But the Indian Act itself is inherently undemocratic in that it was forced on our people mm-hmm. with no power. With no choice and all of the accountability goes back to the Minister of Indian Affairs as opposed yes. to the actual people. And it could literally be 10 people voting for chief and council, and no real form of, of you know, what is the view of the people? What is the consensus of the people? And, and no opportunity to include traditional laws or governing systems within that process.
1: No, you're exactly right. I mean, if, if there's a bylaw that needs to be passed and three people show up, they, they are the, the simple majority, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's not really a democratic... It's not a system that makes sense. It's not a system designed to promote the rights of Indigenous people. It's a system that's designed to promote the agenda of the government. Um, so discussions are uh, revolve around the agenda of the government, whereas for Indigenous people... You know, we do our ceremonies um, and our festivals, like like the Strawberry Festival, the Corn Festival, et cetera. We follow the thirteen moons, and and we also have within our, at least in the Honda people, the political and spiritual structures are intertwined. Mm-hmm. So we are looking at what are what kind of impact is are the actions we're doing today going to have, say tomorrow even, and for future generations. Whereas band council is thinking about today must make a decision, they run on timelines, they're administrative bodies, and they're basically uh, service providers. And they don't carry the kind of inherent rights, nor were they ever the treaty making bodies that the historical treaties revolved around. Of course, there's modern day treaties, but they're, they're a little bit different. So the, the traditional governments um, are, are very much in tune with the environment, um, and as you know, as we like to say, all our relations and the human beings, because we're not the only thing that is that is living on this earth. So we're 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 always examining and looking to see um, any threats and um, but also some of the good things that exist in in our environment.
0: Yeah, well, and I I mean, you raise a really good point around treaties that you know the government has done. Uh, I would say, counter-education on who are the partners to the treaties. So we know it was the Crown. It wasn't even Canada. You know, Mm -hmm. we're talking about representatives of of Her Majesty um, Mm -hmm. making, you know, deals that were supposed to be about peace and friendship and allyship with actual nations who were represented, you know, according to their own laws by traditional governments. So you don't see in any of the historical treaties... So and so First Nation Band Council with, you know, government mm-hmm. of Canada. It just it simply wasn't that way. It was representatives of the Mi'kmaq nation or mm-hmm. you know, the the Maliseet or any of the ones that signed treaties, it was nation-based. I mean, the Indian Act wasn't even thought of back then. But you mm-hmm. know, so so to even talk about treaty rights or any of those things in a context where the band councils are the ones that get to sign away treaty rights they're not even a party to the treaty.
1: No and they're legitimized by the Minister of Indian and Northern Affairs Canada. So we're, you know, we're we're looking at who has inherent rights, which means who has the authority and jurisdiction over our lands, our unceded lands, which is the traditional governments. And and this is where, you know, the, this this confusion uh, lies for a lot of people thinking that, well, you know, the Assembly First Nations or band councils, don't they represent you? And it's it's pretty evident that they don't. And, you know, historically speaking, uh, we, we know that traditional governments, when the Indian Act was created, were a big threat to Canada's assumed uh, sovereignty over our lands. And so they came up with the Indian Act because also on top of that, um, Indigenous women were a threat to the patriarchy. Yeah. So, in 1924, when they criminalized the potlatch ceremonies and anything remotely resembling our culture and our traditions, they also criminalized uh, and outlawed uh, in the traditional governments of Indigenous peoples, like the Haudenosaunee and and every other traditional governments across this land. And what we what we see today, and and it, and it it's not black and white. It's it's kind of gray, but it's like Christian and traditional. Or people, and it's not necessarily even that, because there are some Christians Mm -hmm. who agree that the traditional governments should be the ones negotiating on land. And yes, let's put the band councils as service providers and signing funding financial agreements. But who the the authority, the sole authority on land, are traditional governments, and in particular for us as Haudenosaunee people, uh, it's the women. Where's we're supposed to be protecting the land.
0: Well, and, and that makes a lot, you know, a lot more sense according to our traditional laws and governing systems. And I remember we had a conversation before where you were making the point, you know, like you just said, in 1924 they were specifically criminalizing our traditional forms of government, but it was only a couple decades earlier that we were allies in the War of mm-hmm. 1812. It was our traditional governments that made these choices. And then, you know, didn't you mention something about them specifically targeting the longhouses?
1: Yeah, um, in, in 1924, when they also criminalized uh, to traditional governments like the, the Iroquois Confederacy, mm-hmm. the RCMP raided the longhouse in Six Nations and they killed two clan mothers. That's how big a threat uh, we are. And st- you know, the back then and still remain um, to the legitimacy of Canada. And they assumed sovereignty over our, our lands and, and territories and resources. Uh, the extent that they're using violence 30 years ago, uh, 100 years ago, and the threat of it today uh, is evident that there's not a change in the agenda, the colonial agenda, the economic agenda. And that this whole propaganda, this, this spin doctrine of who is legitimate, who's a criminal, who's inconveniencing who, uh, is being discussed today. Uh, in, in a very ignorant way, I might add. And, and it's, you know, Canadians have had ample opportunity to educate themselves on their colonial history, what is needed for reconciliation. Uh, and I agree with everybody that reconciliation is, is dead. I don't think it ever even mm-hmm. happened. I don't, even, I don't think it was ever resurrected.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: um, and so, uh, you know, people need to, if they're going to discuss us and exclude us from the discussion. They should at least come from a place that's educated, rather than something that is has been spun
0: over the centuries and is is more a fallacy than anything. So I know in our you know in our previous podcast you had you know talked about your involvement um, and some of the experiences in the 1990 siege of Mohawk territory, like in Ganawagi and Ganasetage, and and you know the core issues around land. And, you know, following that was the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, was mm-hmm. which was this big heralded, you know, commission that talked about, you know, land rights and that the, all of the rights and inherent rights all are with the nations. It's mm-hmm. not with individual band councils. And so that was like a massive educational tool that you would think, You know, since 1990, what happened with that siege and attack on Mohawk Territory, with RCAP explaining, hey, you know, it's these traditional nations that have these rights, that there would have been some advancement along those lines since then.
1: Yeah, and that was something that came from the Senate Senate Standing Committee that investigated what was happening during 1990. And we had recommended a royal commission. And so that royal commission came from the work that we did here in uh, in Ghanasadage, and to see that it stood uh, sat on the shelves for so long, that is still just as relevant today as it was then in 1996. Five years of traveling across the country, um, just a token uh, sort of demonstration by you know the government to say that they cared, which they they don't really. Mm-hmm. And then you have the TRC's calls to action, and then you have. Uh, the Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women Commission, uh, and so many things that, like I said, they, they gave ample opportunity, not just for Canadians, but for their government to make real changes and to see that today we're no further ahead than, uh, mm-hmm. than we were 30 years ago or 153 years ago. And it's a really sad reflection to, to see the resistance and, and, to, mm-hmm. and, to, and to just a to question... Why is there so much resistance? Why, why are we always held back? And it's not just politicians. There's a bureaucratic culture in government, unelected people who mm-hmm. are making decisions as well and advising ministers. But on top of that, you know, inherent rights come from the fact that these are rights we were born with. These are rights that we were, have been passed on to us. Pre-European arrival here, mm-hmm. and and so the rule of law includes that. So when they talk about the rule of law and, and you know the the police should go in and use force, well, no, that's an illegal act, because even in Canada's constitution, it supports Indigenous peoples' right to their their self determination and their sovereignty. Not this municipalization and you know a, you know th- this this corny phrase, you know. Uh, to be seen and not not heard or not even to be heard or seen. This is the Mm -hmm. case for Indigenous people. So when is our justice? When is this
0: crazy mess going to change? Exactly. And you mentioned like the rule of law. When is all of the laws going to be applied? And when are we going to engage in this harmonization process where, okay, you know, it's long past time that our Indigenous laws and governing systems are are recognized and respected. I mean, we know it's international law by which Canada is bound that you can't have forced removal of Indigenous peoples from their own territories. Mm-hmm. BC BC literally just implemented undrip that's now the law in BC yet we see the RCMP forcibly removing people and when they talk about the rule of law i mean there's there's two issues that i want to cover with you one about you know indian act jurisdiction but the other one is like rule of law at, at, and around you know who gets to talk about land so mm-hmm. if you look if you look at the Dalgamook case that went all the way to the supreme court of canada Mm-hmm. It was the hereditary leaders representing all of their clans and houses from both mm-hmm. the Wet'suwet'en and the Gitxsan nations that brought the claim. All of the people recognized they were the legitimate bodies to bring this claim. The federal government, the provincial government, the interveners, like everyone. There was mm-hmm. simply no question that they were the ones that would advance Aboriginal title because they're the ones with jurisdiction over land. Yet now you see commentators and... Everyone saying, oh, it's the only legitimate authority is a banned council. And it's like, where do you see banned councils in Dalgamuk anywhere, which clearly was the, you know, legal authority. You just, you don't see it. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the difference between the jurisdiction of banned councils under the Indian Act versus our traditional governments and what's included in our jurisdiction.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the- the only law that really applies uh, on this, for certain instances, is indigenous law. Mm-hmm. So indigenous law precedes European law, and pre- precedes band councils' existence, and um, as has been said by many traditional leaders before this, um, you know, yeah, go ahead, you follow the Indian Act, go ahead and be the service provider, but you do not have the right to negotiate on land, and you know, we, <laughs> there's, there's been too many. In- instances of people on the front line in peril because of this this unilateral interpretation of what the rule of law actually means. So the rule of law includes indigenous people's rights and indigenous laws, includes uh, international uh, human rights obligations, Mm -hmm. because it is about dignity, it is about respecting the dignity uh, of indigenous peoples and our rights, which we've never given up. for you know for far too often, the Supreme Court even has narrowly defined what our inherent rights are mm-hmm. and, it, and the 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 leaps and jumps and hoops we have to go through just to prove that yeah, we are the first peoples of this this land we we are the ones who have the jurisdiction and authority we're going to into flawed systems we're going into systems that are based on racist doctrines, like the doctrine of discovery and terra nullius. Mm-hmm. And this is the box that we have always had to fit, our ancestors had to fit through that box and they, and they didn't. We nev- we've never fit into this box. This is why we see the, these problems happening. So the, this is really, um, I think it's criminal what mm-hmm. they're doing because, mm-hmm. the, because it's, it's, it's a symptom of something even more rotten which is the the abuse of the land the abuse of of threatening future generations from enjoying that land and the the continuation of a brutal colonial regime that will continue to oppress us and and continue to abuse us as human beings uh, with impunity because they can because they have the muscle because they have the resources. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's not a democracy. That is not a, a country mm-hmm. that upholds human rights. So there's something terribly wrong with Canada. And, and it's not to say that it's all flawed. I think there, mm-hmm. if we, comparatively speaking, uh, Canada might be miles ahead. But when, when it comes to really putting their, their words into mm-hmm. action, we see that it's quite the opposite. We see that for Indigenous people... All the things that they claim to uphold and support in other countries does not apply to them. So it's very hypocritical.
0: Yeah, Especially when we're talking about First Nations people, like how mm-hmm. they act, whether it's human rights or women's rights or charter rights and freedoms, like any of those things. Mm-hmm. Of their own laws, you know, never mind that they're their laws, not our laws. They don't even extend those, any of those protections and um, when it comes to Indigenous laws, they seem to pick and choose which ones they will consider valuable or mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. authoritative because, I mean, you know how many, how many politicians have outright criticized ban councils and how much mm-hmm. funding goes to them and they accuse them of mismanagement and they have no authority over anything. But boy, when they want to push a pipeline through someone's territory... They will do anything to avoid the actual government and go straight to the band councils. And all of a sudden, they're held up as the only authority.
1: As a legitimate authority, right? Hmm. And Andrew Andrew Scheer talked about, you know, we support the Watsutin ban council. And yeah. and you know, but in, in every other instance, he, he has no they have no use for for indigenous peoples and respecting our rights. And the thing that is, that's really necessary to say at this point is that it's not the people, it's not a personal thing. Yeah. It's, it's really about a system that is designed to undermine our rights, that mm-hmm. disrespects our rights, that has put our people uh, time and time again uh, under threat, in peril, uh, denying our human rights. We had our fundamental human rights in 1990 uh, destroyed and yep. violated. As, as, if, as if we deserved it, like, like treating us as, as if we were subhuman. And I, I find it despicable to hear the commentary from people like Andrew Scheer or François Legault mm-hmm. um, in, a, in a province where, you know, in the, in the 1960s or early 70s, you had the Fédération de Liberation du Québec, you know, the FLQ, kidnapped two men, killed one of them, uh, Pierre Laporte, uh, James Cross, a British citizen. They kidnapped them for Quebec freedom. And yet now, but it's okay. And, and it's, it's, it's this historical amnesia that Quebecers have and forgetting their own history of violence um, for their own, what they see as perceived sovereignty. Um, so I, I've, I've, I'm very disturbed, extremely disturbed. Uh, by what I hear from the premier mm-hmm. particularly the premier of Quebec, and to, to know that the, the prime minister of Canada is leaving it as a, as a police operation at the, at the Wet'suwet'en territory. It's a very simple request in order to sit down and have discussions and, yeah. and perhaps resolve this issue, but he's shirking his responsibilities and he does have the power to remove the RCMP and to, to put a moratorium Uh, on development, as we've asked here in Ganassag, put a moritama on Mm -hmm. development,
0: and and they refuse. They absolutely refuse. And and we're not asking anything that we haven't been asking this entire time, that in order to deal with our land issues fairly, you can't keep stripping our lands of Mm -hmm. the plants and animals and what you consider to be resources. While not dealing with our, our our land issues, that's certainly not in good faith. And we're not asking for anything more than what we are entitled to, not just under our laws, but under Canadian and international laws. I mean, the United Nations Committee for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, in a really like rare move, because they rarely do this, came mm-hmm. out and said, Canada, stand down. You mm-hmm. You need to stop what you're doing. You need to put a freeze on all project approvals. And get the RCMP and their weapons out of what in mm-hmm. territory. So for all the people who think we're just asking, you know, for some radical demands, actually these are quite in line with Canada's international and domestic obligations. There's nothing out of line.
1: No, exactly. It's our land and it's our right. Yeah. And and that's that's what people don't get. They they make this assumption. And, and they always use economics to put us down and and to say, you know, we don't deserve, we don't deserve um, to be able to protect our lands and our rights to those okay. lands. And and we don't even deserve the right to protect our lives. That's basically what they're saying. So I'm glad that, yeah. that the serve the did this, because it, you're right, it is an unusual move to, for them to criticize a country like Canada. And I'm sure you know, when we, when we have the uh, the UN Permanent Forum this year, in, in the spring, um, Canada will, will walk with their heads down, I, I hope, um, because they are showing their true colors. They have been showing their true colors. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I wish that people, Indigenous people, would learn their own history and, and yes. the colonialism. We know about the Indian residential school system. We know what the church has done in our communities. And when people rise up to protect their lands, everyone should get together no matter what faction you're sitting in. Yeah. And, and, but they don't seem to be because, you know, one of the things about multigenerational trauma is don't feel, you know, don't, don't tell and don't speak. And, and they've trained us to do that. So anybody who makes trouble... is is like oh my god you know they're scary they don't know what they're talking Mm -hmm. about I'm the good moderate Indian yeah and uh, and I'm just like you look I'm just like you I agree with you yeah ruining they're violating the the rule of law when it's actually actually no it's actually the other way they're violating the rule of law and they're the ones creating this trouble and and yet we continue to be criminalized and I and I hope uh, that there will be a ton of complaints at the UN permanent forum against Canada this year because uh, oh my gosh yeah it's 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 like i said when when will
0: this craziness stop well exactly and i think you really hit on the point i mean colonization has so deeply impacted us and all of us you know like whether we're traditional or not like from mm-hmm. all different backgrounds on or off reserve we're all colonized it's really hard to think without the colonizers in our head and this whole concept of, you know, good Indian and bad Indian, mm-hmm. that's that's not even, you know, in our minds. That's literally what all of the residential school training, what all of Canada's laws and policies, what all of their messages are, that you can be a good assimilated Indian and, and they reward you or mm-hmm. you can be a bad Indian. And I mean, we had a former Minister of Indian Affairs literally speak in Parliament and say that the treaty chiefs were threats to national security because they Mm -hmm. wouldn't sign away their treaties. And, you know, it's this whole good Indian, bad Indian thing. And, and, you know, then it gets placed on us and they want us to have divisions and they use money and power and wealth to try to manage all of those divisions, which is why all these questions come up around, you know, Indian Act chief and council versus traditional forms of governance. And I keep telling people this isn't a good people, bad people thing. This mm-hmm. is ways in which we have been colonized and we are trying to navigate our ways around it. Like the people who work, like I work with um, lots of First Nations chiefs and counselors who are trying to navigate the system
1: mm-hmm. with
0: and you know, doing harm reduction. And then and I also work with traditional governments and I also work with community groups because we've all gotta try to find a way forward but also understanding at the same time where our authorities stop and mm-hmm. um you know it's almost like can- canadians are learning for the first time traditional government what what's a traditional government we've never heard of that before mm-hmm. as if the whole siege at Ganawage and kanasatage never happened and mm-hmm. and and i'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the Haudenosaunee. Um, form of government because we've heard, you know, a lot in the media about the Wet'suwet'en. They have a hereditary system. They have five clans, 13 houses. They have Mm -hmm. their, you know, I think it's called a balat, which is like their potlatch and all of their laws and ceremonies. And there's been some assumption that traditional forms of government for other nations are all exactly the same. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about how your traditional form works.
1: Yeah, so we, we have a similar, uh, in the sense that we have a clan system. So in the Kanyakahaga Mohawk Nation, there is turtle, bear, and wolf. And um, there are three representatives of, of clan mothers and, and chiefs for each clan. So nine chiefs in the Kanyakahaga Nation. And in the Confederacy, the whole Confederacy with the uh, Tuscarora, Oneidas, Cayugas, Dagas, um, it, they make 50, and it's the women that hold the title to those, those 50 chiefs. And so um, we sit, we deliberate, we sit in our clans. Uh, an issue is brought up, we discuss it, and we try and get to a conclusion where everybody agrees on an issue uh, and it can accommodate uh, one another. And so it's really the people who are leading and the chiefs and clan mothers have to do whatever the, the, the people are saying. But the chiefs and clan mothers can also say, well, when someone is acting out of line, they were able to counsel people. We have ceremonies um, that uh, we do, as I said, mentioned the 13 moons. Um, but our spiritual and political structures are intertwined. So, you know, we, we burn tobacco when we're ever trying to think of something so that we can have good minds to think about what we're doing today and what's going to happen in the future. But it is very much a democracy in the sense that everyone has a say. Everyone gets the opportunity to speak, as opposed to what we mentioned previously in in band councils and and where three people can show up or ten people can show up and they make the majority and affect the lives of the rest of the community. So it's very much uh, a nation. And and so when we're talking about nation-to-nation relationships, um, this is who we're talking about, the Haudenosaunee people, uh, the Wet'suwet'en, the Mi'kmaq Confederacy, uh, um, all these other traditional governments that predate European arrival. And our Indigenous law does not allow for unsustainable activities mm-hmm. like the pipelines to go through. And indigenous law does not allow that, and then that's what people need to understand. We are trying to follow our laws and when we do so under duress, a lot of times, and I think pe- even people in band councils, mm-hmm. they are doing it under duress because we do not have a choice. This is not an option that is that is taken, and um, and it's not a, it's not something that's taken lightly by by many people. And it's always always the government's way that that pushes through, whether it's an Indigenous Languages Act, whether it's legislation for the UN Declaration. Uh, or anything else that affects Indigenous peoples, and and you know we we just we simply have to look at um, how our people were, uh, and and how our people have evolved over the years, and and the the resiliency in keeping those ancestral teachings and the languages. My goodness, you have to be strong people given given the odds and the brutality of colonization. So, you know that's that's one thing I I, I want to tell the young people out there you look at us and we're all, you know, we're dysfunctional and, and, and there's good reason for it. But you also have to look at the resiliency of our people and the strength and courage it's taking right now for those people to be on the front lines. So there's, and, and it's always been traditional people on the front lines. Mm-hmm. And band council benefits from those things. We did not benefit as traditional people 30 years later because we see that we're still struggling with the same land issues and, uh. uh Again, it's, it's 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 madness. We're living in a time of madness.
0: Well, well, it is, and it's. And it's it's actually critically important to our collective futures because one thing you were you know I picked up on when you were talking about indigenous laws is that it doesn't allow for unsustainable or harmful activities to the ecosystem in which we are. And last night when the Wet'suwet'en came to Toronto, uh, the hereditary leaders and one from the Gitsan Nation and Frida Houston and others, we all sat down and talked about. Um, some of these issues because they're on their way. Well, they're already in Tandinega. they're Then they're going to Gunnawage. But they said, you know, we're, we're not asking for money. We're not mm-hmm. hurting people. Our two issues are one, we are trying to protect our pristine territory, our lands mm-hmm. and waters from destruction. Because, And that's for the benefit of our future generations and and that's kind of getting lost in all this conversation over who has authority to make any decisions and they said you know the other issue is really we don't want men camps in our territories because they mm-hmm. increase the rates in which native women are abused they're exploited they're trafficked they're disappeared and they're murdered and that's the that's the statistical fact of the reality and so you know not that they need a reason because it's their territory. They can just say no if they want to. But these are the two reasons that have compelled them to really push on this and stand up and say, we don't want this in our territory. And then it makes me think, wow, what, what if we didn't have our traditional forms of government still in place? And, and I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about how critical these traditional laws and forms of government are to our futures. And when I say our, I mean all native peoples and the people that share Turtle Island right now.
1: Well, you know, there has been a lot of documentation on how traditional knowledge um, has maintained biodiversity, uh, has brought, uh, you know, if we look at the pharmaceutical industry, 74, 76 percent, of pharmaceuticals have been derived from traditional knowledge. And it's it's a way to understand the importance of us in, in our existence in this universe. And those traditional knowledge systems are the ones who will guide us through climate change. The UN has many reports that talk about traditional knowledge and the importance in tackling or surviving uh, climate change. So, if there were no people who were resisting and standing up mm-hmm. and understanding the reasons why you're standing up at the same time, right you have to have you have to understand your arguments. you have to have good knowledge of that. Um, we would just be part of the melting pot. We would just be another minority within a, a very uh, colonial um, mm-hmm. a society that where the free market economy is what rules. And and the environment means nothing. The people's lives mean nothing. Um, we there's so much rich, richness that you know our ancestors who gave us these teachings and our languages um, fought to protect in in greater and dire situations than what we're feeling now. Uh, we, we don't have the social media networks to to be mm-hmm. our witness, right? So that kind of knowledge is still precious it still exists and it's not going to exist without the land we need the land to continue those teachings to understand where we've come from where we where why we are where we are and how we want to move forward that that is also part of um, a trauma-informed lens Mm-hmm. And, and this, is, this is the state we're in. We have to accept that. And this, it's how we get out of it uh, in a way that is respectful to ourselves, to each other, and, and of course, to, to the earth and uh, all our relations. It's extremely important. It's because if we look at Western society, it's a very narcissistic society. Mm-hmm. And, and it, the issue becomes about a person when it's really the issue is not about a singular person. It's about the land Mm-hmm. And, and are we going to survive as a species in 100 years? Will we be able to? And I think that's what people should start questioning. People are standing up for the land,
0: mm-hmm. for,
1: for those children, those babies not yet born. And, and that's, that's Indigenous law. That's part of that law. And I don't think Canadian law has that.
0: No, I don't either. Canadian law is clearly set up to set up processes to uh, you know to essentially authorize any project going forward i mean when have you ever seen a major project um you know not be something that first nations or Mm -hmm. indigenous nations were forced to sign on but i i really like what you know that you've got these kind of underlying themes in 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 your responses around you know the strength of our people so even though we're colonized even though there's a whole bunch of hardship on us, even though it looks like at times um, that we're divided, we are united in our strength of surviving. It's just the ways in which we're trying to survive um, that, that makes it, it very difficult. But this kind of core message of hope that it's, you know, our traditional laws and our traditional governments, which are about protecting the land, essentially saves the future for, for all of us. And I think uh, the indigenous youth who are listening to this podcast, who are trying to wade their way through all the noise and misinformation out there can get a lot of hope from that because we're still here and, and we have people like you, like, I am so thankful when everything happened, you know, the, the siege at Kahnawake and Kahnaasatake and, I know you were there. You were a critical part of all of that. And I can't imagine how all of this that's happening with the Wet'suwet'en must bring up all of those feelings about what was happening then. But yet you're still out there trying to educate people. And I am so thankful because you have been a guidepost for me. And, you know, a lot of our youth don't have a guidepost. Like, who do you measure against to make sure that you're following the right path not to agree with everything not to do everything the exact same way but when it comes down to the core principles of sovereignty and governance and land and and our relations with other people who is that guidepost and for me you have been one of the most important guideposts and and the fact that you're a, a strong Mohawk woman warrior is is what gives me strength, and and I know when I'm going in the wrong direction based on on the work that you do, and I can't thank you enough for that, Alan. Mm-hmm. Oh well, thank you so much, Pam um, it, It's
1: always it's always good to hear that. Uh, I, I think that when we do, we're doing this the work that we're doing. It's about responsibility. It's about our obligations, and. Um, I had many good teachers, many elders, and many young people also, uh, and many indigenous people around the world and non-indigenous people who have taught me. And I think being a Mohawk person, you, 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 it's in your DNA to be stubborn and to resist. <laughs> and I think as you as a Mi'kmaq woman as well, it's, uh, knowing many Mi'kmaq people, <laughs> you, you're very similar to us. Um, and I do appreciate the work that you're, you've, you've done. You've, um, you inspire me and... Uh, I'm awestruck sometimes by by uh, you know how you're able to present uh, situations to people in a way that they can understand. so uh, you know this is this is a committee of mutual respect here and and I really value the, all the stuff and all the work that you've done. so i'm I'm very honored uh, to hear your words, Nyoko.
0: Thank you so much and and I wish you all the best in your um, protocol relations with the Wet'suwet'en who are coming to your territory um, to reinforce our allyship and our strength and unity around defending our lands and mm. and you know that it, it's really these kinds of alliances and confederacies and treaties that we have with one another. I think that's going to to get done what we need to do and and your persistence is really inspiring. So I hope you come back again to our podcast. You're always, you know, you're always welcome here and we'll keep trying to cover these issues as they're happening.
1: Well, it's been a great pleasure talking to you again, as always, Pam. And um, I would uh, welcome any opportunities in the future to speak with you again. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Thank you all for tuning into my show. I really hope you enjoyed listening to Ellen and better understand the role of traditional indigenous governance and the purpose of our laws, which is to protect our territories for all living beings. If you like this episode, please consider supporting my podcast by subscribing, liking and sharing each episode. And let me know what other podcast topics you would like me to cover. I'm currently hosted on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher and Spotify. You can also follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn as Pam Palmetter. You can subscribe to my videos on YouTube, where I also provide information about what's happening and tackle the difficult political and legal issues facing Indigenous peoples. And for access to even more information, all in one spot, you can check out my website at www.pampalmetter.com, where you can see my podcasts, videos, blogs, publications, and more. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walalia.